Uh, well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. While you're turning there, uh, I, I love being a part of weddings. That's one of the coolest experiences in my life, and then that's one of the coolest privileges that I have as a pastor, is being in weddings, being able to officiate weddings. Uh, I just, I love weddings from beginning to end. I love the entire thing. I love, uh, even in the whole coronavirus, I was able to uh, be a part of Daniel and Rosie's wedding, which was just unbelievable, one of the best weddings that uh, I've ever been able to be a part of. Just an amazing time. I love weddings. And one of the things that I love to do in premarital counseling, which uh, I've been able to have the privilege of doing with several different couples. My wife and I meet with couples. We, we talk with them. We sit down. We ask them, as you're thinking about getting married, we just have questions. We have a number of questions. Sometimes it's eight weeks long, sometimes 10 weeks, sometimes 12 weeks. We just talk through questions about who they are, about their goals together, about living life together, biblically looking at what marriage is. And one of my favorite questions to ask right off the bat is, why do you love this person? What is it that you love about them? What is it that you just can't get enough of about them? Tell me everything that you know about them. What is it that you love? What if you were sitting across from a couple and you asked that question and the couple said, maybe the bride looks at you and says, well, I, I like him. I don't really love him. And I really don't like talking about all these things. I don't like talking about his interests or what he enjoys or what I like about him. I don't know that much about him, and I just want to leave it that way. Or what if the groom said, all the questions that you're asking, I don't really want to know the answer to those. I don't really want to know what makes my uh, future spouse tick. I don't really want to know what their interests are. I don't really want to know who they are. I like them for who they are now, and I don't want to grow in my understanding of them anymore. I really want to leave them as a mystery. I don't want to worry about anything else that I don't know about them in our relationship yet? What would you say? If you heard those answers, if you heard those responses, you would say, breaks are on. We are not looking at getting married anytime soon, right? We have a serious problem on our hands. And yet I think most Christians prefer to avoid talking about God, specifically as Trinity, our triune God. Because of the mystery that's inherent in three and one, I think many Christians just go, well, we know that he is triune. We know that he is three and one. We don't know how all that works. And frankly, I'm fine to leave it that way. I love him. I just don't want to learn that mysterious part about him. I get it. I get it. Most Christians say there's a God that I know and I love him and I'm content to just be there. Sometimes we even equate the mystery that we don't understand about who God is as worship, as awe. We just say, well, we don't fully know, and that's fine. We don't need to know, and I'll just leave it as awe. Even when sharing the gospel, we typically involve the cross, obviously. Sometimes we forget the resurrection, though we need it. We sometimes miss repentance. But often we miss the triune nature of God as we share the gospel with others. But this morning, I want to say very clearly, you will never fully delight in God deeply as you should, as we ought to, until we press into the triune nature of God, to who he is. And in fact, if we don't press into the Trinity, our view of God will quickly turn into idolatry. It will quickly turn to idolatry. Leave God abstract, don't investigate the Trinity at all, and you'll be robbed of true joy and delight in God. 
Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said it this way. It's not to be expected that we should love God supremely if we've not known him to be more desirable than all other things. We won't love God supremely if we don't find him and understand him to be more desirable than anything in this world. Is he truly desirable? Should we know him in this way? Well, John 17, if you're there, John 17, verse 3, this is what Jesus says. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just a quantity of time, it's a quality of relationship to know God. And to know God, you have to know him for who he is, and to know him for who he is is to know him as a triune God. Turn to Psalm 27. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, this is what David says. One thing, we sing this song at our church. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to gaze upon who he is, the majesty inside of the mystery of who he is. I want to gaze upon. I want to know. I don't want to just see and then say, I've got enough and look away. I want to gaze. Turn over to Psalm 89. Uh, Psalm 84, rather. Psalm 84, verse 1. This was a song that I sang growing up in church. How lovely, this is Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, the swallows a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. I want to be in your house. I want to see your glory. I want to be just savoring the goodness of God. I want to know you. And then he says in verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We live for and love what captures our hearts. You can see in these passages, God is meant to capture our affections. We are meant to gaze upon the beauty of God. And so my question to you this morning is if somebody were to come to you and ask, why is God a trinity? What would your response be? If God is triune in the Bible, we see clearly that he is a trinity. He is three in one. If he is, why does that matter? If somebody came to you and they said, why does it matter that God's a triune God? How does that make a difference? Or said another way, if somebody were to come to you and ask you, if God were not triune, what would change about your faith? If God were not triune, what would change about your faith? Over the next three weeks, I want to ask that question of the scriptures and meditate on the majesty of the mystery of the Trinity. I had the privilege of studying uh, this last semester on the Trinity. It was the, the entire semester was really on the Trinity. And I read a book uh, that was called Delighting in the Trinity by a man named Michael Reeves. I read his little book. It's very little. You think 
you, you would think that if you're going to seminary for a doctorate degree, that you'd have to read this enormous tome, and there are some tomes that I've had to read. But this book is a very accessible. I would encourage everybody to get it. I would encourage everybody to read it. Mike Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. He actually came out and spoke at our seminary and spoke on these matters and other matters, and it just rocked my world, absolutely shattered my paradigm of who God is. And so I just want to take what I've learned and what has stirred my affections for the Lord, I just want to take those things and give them to you. So this is all found in Mike Reeves' book, Delighting in the Trinity. None of this is original material in my own mind. I am standing on his shoulders. If you like anything in this sermon, if anything in this sermon stirs your affections for the Lord, that is due to our brother Michael Reeves. If anything in this sermon just leaves you scratching your head with a question mark, that's due to my misunderstanding Michael Reeves and bringing that to you. So that's why I encourage you, go read Delighting in the Trinity. Amazing book. And what I want to do over the next three weeks is we shift, right? We just finished our study in Habakkuk. And I want to go to another minor prophet. I want to go to the, the prophet Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a prophet similar to Habakkuk, just a little bit more narrative, a lot more narrative and a lot less prophecy given. And so I want to study the book of Jonah. Uh, we'll do that after these three weeks, Lord willing. Um, but for, for these three weeks, I just I want us to go deep into the relevance of the Trinity. We so often think we, we need to relegate the Trinity and everything about the Trinity to seminarians, to theologians. We, we don't need to worry about that. And this morning, I want us to see three reasons why the Trinity is necessary, beautiful, and understandable. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in together. We're going to be turning to a lot of different passages there won't be one specific passage that we dive into. We've done that in Habakkuk. We're going to do that again, Lord willing, in Jonah. We're going to be flipping around, having fun. This is going to be a meditation, more of a meditation, less of a sermon. We'll get there, but this is more of a meditation. But I just, I want to pray that our hearts would grow in love. Obviously, our heads would grow in understanding, but that that would translate to affections growing for God that we've just never had before. So would you pray with me to that end? Father, we ask that you would teach us what it means that you are Father. Even on this Father's Day, we're going to see some implications about you being Father that, that matter for how we speak and interact with our own kids. God, we want to see the implications of what it means that you are a trinity, that you are three in one, which is so clear in the scriptures. Yes, the word trinity is not in the Bible, but there are lots of words that aren't in the Bible, but their concepts are crystal clear by implication, and the Trinity is one of them. And so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Even that, that prayer that we pray every Sunday, we ask the Holy Spirit to do that. That's what the psalmist asked, the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, and then we're asking that Jesus would be seen and savored so that the glory of the Father would be seen and savored as well. Father, we desire that we would see all three members of the Trinity, that we would see all three members in one Godhead in a way that the majesty of the mystery of the Trinity would drive us to our knees, would drive us to an understanding that we've not had before and therefore an affection that would grow 
maybe for the very first time today, for our triune God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, for his glory, for the Father's glory, and for the Spirit's glory. Amen. Amen. Well, you will never delight in God deeply until you press into the Trinity. That's the goal of diving in. We want to grow and delight in God because we can press into the Trinity together. So we have to ask the question, where do we start? Where do we begin when we're thinking about the Trinity? Where do we begin? And most people, when they're thinking about the Trinity, where do they begin? They begin with illustrations, right? God is like an egg. God is like an apple. God is like water. God is like a leaf, right? We have all these different illustrations to try and explain God. And to me, it makes sense that people walk away going, I don't really feel like I want to follow this eggish, gaseous God. Like, why do I want to follow this leafy God? That makes no sense to me. And, and illustrations, as good as they may be, they all fall woefully short of who God truly is. So you cannot get to the Trinity by illustration. We don't believe the Trinity because of eggs and water and leaves. We believe the Trinity because of the Bible. So go back to John. Go back to John. You'll see in John, we have to begin just by, by looking at the very, very end of John's gospel and just stopping and asking a couple questions. John chapter 20, verse 31. Remember, Jesus did all these different signs. John's writing, the ones that I'm writing in my book are for a purpose. He's done so many other signs that I'm not adding into my book. But verse 31, these have been written so that you be may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the word Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's the anointed one who's sent by God on an errand, on a task. He's the Christ, and he's the Son of God. That means if he's the Son of God, that means we also have God as our Father. So we have God as Son, God as Father, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If Jesus is Son, then we have to have God the Father. And if Jesus is anointed, we have to have God anointing his Son. So when you start with the Jesus of the Bible, you necessarily come away with a Trinitarian God. Remember even John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God, the Word is God, God is with God. So right there in John chapter 1, verse 1, we have two members of the Godhead. God and God are together. How does that work? We know that God is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, all over the Bible says, we don't believe in many gods, we believe in one God, but we believe in three persons in one God. Just a couple chapters earlier, go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 24. In that high priestly prayer, when Jesus prays, uh, this is eternal life, that they would know you, Father, who sent me. In verse 24, at the end of this high priestly prayer, there's an amazing, rich section that we studied a few years ago. Jesus says, Father, this is John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me, where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the world was created, God the Father loved his Son. And we know that his Son was not created. Therefore, his Son existed before creation existed. Therefore, God loved his Son eternally. God is a perfect Father, eternally loving and delighting in his most perfect Son. That leads us to the first point this morning. Because, number one, point number one, this is the relevance. This is three reasons why the Trinity is relevant and necessary and why we can understand and how we can understand. Point number one, because God is triune, God is love. Because God is triune, God is love. 
If, another way you could say it is, if God were not triune, God would not be love. God would not be love. Turn to 1 John. All the way towards the back of our Bibles here. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and the one who does not love does not even know God, because God is love. You can say what you would like to about what you believe, but you cannot say that you truly know who God is, and you truly know him in a saving way, If you don't see love increasing and flowing in your own life because you say you're following a God who is love and yet you are unloving. You don't simply know, or you simply don't know God if you are not becoming more loving because that's who he is and if you are in him, that's who you will become. It's like if if you've hung out with, usually I find it in older saints, just hang out with older saints, and they just exude joy, right? You have somebody that you're thinking of in your mind, that you just hang out with them, and they're loving, and they're kind, and they're gracious, and they're compassionate, and they're sweet, and it's just like being near them, in close proximity to them, you just become sweeter as well, right? You're like, I wish I could live with you, because then I'd be way nicer than I am right now. That's what's happening here in 1 John. If you are in God, and he is love, you can't help but become more loving. The same is true about God, but just infinitely so. God is love. God would not be who he is if he did not love. And this is where we have to go back to the Trinity. If God existed in eternity past, all by himself, with no other persons in the Trinity. So in eternity past, we have one solitary person in the Godhead. Nothing has been made, nothing has been created, Nothing has been formed. Can we say that that God is a loving God? You can say that he's going to have love once he makes something. But you can't say intrinsically that that's who he is because he has nothing to love. So he might love down the road, but he can't love anything currently. Therefore, he cannot be loved because he's waiting for creation to happen so he has something to love. If God is not triune, God cannot be loved. If God is triune, since God is triune, in eternity past, before creation ever happened, God was loving each member of the Trinity. The Father had infinite love for his Son. The Son had infinite love for the Father. The Holy Spirit had infinite love for the Father and the Son. Therefore, God is love. Think about it in another way. If God were love without the Trinity existing, which is an impossibility. But if he were love without the Trinity existing, he would have to be love only when he has something to love. And therefore, his love is dependent. His nature is dependent upon creation. He needs us in order to be who he is if he's not triune. He cannot be loving. If he's a solitary figure in eternity past, he waits, he creates us, and then he becomes a loving God. He becomes a father. Because he creates. But he's always created. He's always been life-filling, life-giving. He's always been full of love and full of life. That's what it means for God to be father. I I became a father when Chelsea was born. 
Brother Luke became a father when Ava was born. Before Ava was born, Luke was not a dad. Before my daughter Chelsea was born, I was not a dad. And yet before any of us were made, God was still father because he is Trinity. He has a son, not a physical uh, offspring of the father, but a son in relationship to the father. If at any time God did not have a son whom he loved, then he would not be God the father and he would not be a loving God. Just think about the baptism. Jesus says, the father says about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love my son. Everything that he does pleases me. I love my son. Everything that he does pleases me. Jesus has the exact same attitude towards the father. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, calls out, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I praise you. I love you. I adore you. From eternity past, they have been in a relationship, three persons in one Godhead, enjoying each other in perfect love, perfect unity, perfect harmony. So that might seem a bit uh, intellectual. So I think it would be helpful at this point to compare the reality of God as triune to every other man-made God that's out there. It might be helpful to see the beauty of the one true triune God by looking at every other man-made God. Let's compare. The nature of the triune God of the Bible is completely at odds with every other God that's been invented by man in every other religion. All other gods are needy gods. They require our worship in order to be who they are. They require our service. They need us. Again, imagine a God who's not triune, just sitting there for all of eternity by himself. What is he doing? Poor, lonely God. And that's why a lot of people think that God made humans, why God made creation. You ask nine out of ten evangelical Christians, why did God make us? And you'll get the answer, he was bored. He was bored in heaven, he had nothing better to do, and he made us. That's not the case. That's not biblically what happens. God doesn't make us out of boredom. He doesn't need us in order to be happy. He makes us in order to be able to give us his love and to give us his life. The God of the Bible does not need us. Now, please don't confuse that with doesn't want or love us. God wants us. God loves us. But he doesn't need us. If he makes us because he needs us, then our relationship with him becomes a relationship of contract right? God says, I'll make you, but you need to do things to make me happy. And if we fail to do those things, we don't make him happy. And therefore, our relationship is broken. But if God makes us not out of need, but out of love, out of overflowing, life-giving love, then this isn't a contract. This is a covenant. I'm going to choose to love you. I don't demand anything from you. I choose to love you. The Father's never been lonely. For all eternity, the Father has been perfectly satisfied by his relationship with his Son. He doesn't need us, and therefore he can truly love us with perfect selflessness. By the way, just think about eternity past. Think about billions and billions and billions of years. I mean, there wasn't even time, so you can't even say eternity past as far as a calculated time, but God was around before anything was made. Think about that time. The Bible says that God the Father never once got bored of his son. 
That's so helpful and instructive for me. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just think, I get it. I get who Jesus is. I get the gospel. I get the love that God has for me. I get it. And then sometimes my relationship with Jesus is one of boredom, where I think, I've got it. I've, I've kind of figured this out, and I'm bored, and let's move on to something deeper, something better. But think about God the Father. Never once did he ever say, I'm bored of my son. By the way, fathers, happy Father's Day to us. <laughs> you look at this and you go, oh, my word, I have failed my kids. Dads, our responsibility is to image the Father, our Heavenly Father, to our children. Therefore, we don't need our kids. We should never place upon our children a burden that unless they perform a certain way, I can't be happy. That's not at all the way our Father treats us. That's not at all the way our Heavenly Father treated His Son in eternity past. What an implication for us. Our kids should know our satisfaction and delight in them simply because they are our kids. Simply because they are ours and we love them. God is a heavenly father. He's like light shining forth. The glory of God shines forth. This is why there's so many descriptions of God's glory just shining forth and people delighting in his glory from Bethlehem, remember the shepherds see the glory of God on display and they, they bow down in fear and then all the way to the new Jerusalem where the glory of God shines forth in heaven so much that we don't even need a sun. I think we'll have a sun, but we don't even need it. He's just constantly giving. He doesn't need anything from us. He just gives out love and light. C.S. Lewis captures this so well in the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read that book, that's an amazing book. There's a, a senior demon. This is all just a um, an illustration in his mind, an analogy of what's going on, but there's a senior demon and he's talking to a junior demon about how to tempt and cause people to sin, how to get into their minds, their hearts, and, and help them along in sin. It's an amazing book. And C.S. Lewis talks about the devil in this book, obviously the chief of the demons, and he is the definitive single person, solitary figure, quote-unquote Godhead, right? He's the single definitive, solitary person. And when people think of God as a mean person sitting on a throne, ordering us around for his selfish purposes, I wonder if really they're actually thinking about how the devil operates. Because listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I love this quote. C.S. Lewis says, one must face the fact, and this is a demon, this is a senior demon talking to a junior demon about how God operates. One must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for man his service being perfect freedom is not as we demons would gladly believe mere propaganda. It's an appalling truth. So there's a demon saying, we would like to think that God's love for others is just this crazy made-up make-believe, but it's actually true. He really does want to fill the universe with the lot of the lonesome little replicas of his, himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale would be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed by them, but because their wills freely conform to his. And then he says this, we demons want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and need to be filled. He is full and flows over. The devil's a black hole. 
And the triune Godhead is a glorious star shining brightly. Without God being triune, he would not be love. He would not be life-giving. He would not be a God worthy of our worship. Secondly, number two, because God is triune, God is gracious. So not only because God is triune, he is love, but because God is triune, he's gracious. He's gracious. The Trinity is the reason why grace exists. No grace is possible without God being a triune God. And we're going to look at this a lot more specifically next week, but let's begin this morning. Again, I think it would be helpful to compare what a God of grace as a triune God looks like compared to other religions. And I would like to take the religion of Islam with the God of the Quran, Allah, not in a pejorative sense. I just want to objectively use the Quran to show you what Islam believes about Allah. Okay? Allah is a solitary God. There's no, no persons in the Godhead. And where religious pluralism, pluralism reigns today, right? There's a pluralistic world today that just reigns. Of all gods are the same. They all lead to the same place. But you'll see the God of the Bible is markedly different than the God of the Quran. Notice how different Allah is because he's not triune as we go through this. And just a warning as we go through it. I believe that we fall into believing that our God is more like Allah when we fail to love and to cherish and to treasure his triunity. It's the fact that he is the Trinity. This is the sort of God that you will default to if you are not explicitly Trinitarian. Okay? So here's what the Quran says. Quote, Say not Trinity, desist, because it would be better for you, because God is one God, glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. Elsewhere it says, say that he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. So notice he's not a father because he begets not. He's not a son because it explicitly says far exalted is he above having a son. And this isn't just difference in numbers. This isn't just difference in, well, Allah is one person in one Godhead and our God is three persons in one Godhead. This isn't just difference in numbers. This is difference in motivation and character, a completely different God. If Allah is truly God, what is he truly like? If he's really God, let's press into what he would really be like. Again, solitary figure. What was he doing for all of eternity before he created everything? He had nothing to love, no one to love. He couldn't be a God of love. In fact, love for others clearly could not be his heartbeat. He's managed to go on for all of eternity without loving anyone or anything. Allah is said to have 99 names according to the Quran. 99 names. One of them is love. Technically, it's the loving. Traditional Islam actually thinks that's a bad translation of the word. Actually, don't think that God's a God of love. Allah's a God of love. They actually don't even say that. But since that doesn't really sell very well in the West, they say that translation's okay. God's a, the loving one. But again, what is he loving? And if you ask a Muslim, how could God be a loving God if he's not Trinity? Who was he loving? What was he loving? There's two answers that they'll give you. 
Answer number one is he was loving the Quran because the Quran is an eternal book. So it was just God with a book. And he loved that book. But that's not a very relational love, right? The book's not loving him back. The second answer they give is the one we already talked about. That God became a loving God when he made us, when he created us. He was looking forward to his creation, and when he made us, he became a loving God. But again, we have a huge problem there because for Allah to be who he is, if he claims to be an independent God and a loving God, for him to be who he is, he's dependent upon his creation, so that nullifies that claim, and he's not love until he creates. It just doesn't make sense without the Trinity. Michael Reeves says it this way, and I think that this is so helpful to dive deeper into the differences between the triune God of the Bible and the God of Islam. The implications for the character of Allah are concerning. Not being essentially loving, the Quran says that Allah is also the source of evil in just the same way that he is the source of all good. Meaning that while he can be described as compassionate and merciful, there are other names that describe him just as well in the Quran. Listen to some of the other names. Remember, 99 different titles. Allah is also called the proud, the destroyer, and the best of deceivers. Over 20 passages in the Quran, Allah is said to deceive and pervert man's will. The most famous deception is that everybody who saw Jesus be crucified thought it was Jesus, but Allah took Jesus away and put somebody else deceptively in his place so that Jesus wouldn't be the one to die. So Jesus didn't die on the cross, according to Islam. What does faith in such a God look like? It's a scary faith. If he is called the destroyer, and he's not loving, and it's an unsure faith if he's a deceiver. We can't have a gracious God that we rest in assurance that he is working in grace towards us. Again, go back to, it's a contract if God has no love for anything until he makes us, it's a contract with us, and when we break that contract, we have a problem. It's a contract of good works instead of a covenant of grace that God gives us. So this is a, an unsure faith. You can't ever have assurance in the religion of Islam. You can't be assured. Let me give you an example of this. So Muhammad who created Islam, his successor, his disciple, who was the successor after he died, was the first caliph of Islam, and his name is Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr was personally assured by Muhammad himself. Muhammad said, Abu Bakr, you are for sure going to go to heaven. Like this is like, you remember in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul's writing the book, uh, this little letter to the church in Philippi, and he says, I'm writing to these two women that are struggling, and I'm asking that Clement help them whose name is written in the book of life. Like, if you ever struggle with assurance problems, Clement's not one of those, right? He was told by the Apostle Paul, dude, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. He never had assurance problems ever again. He knew he was saved. That's like what Muhammad's doing here. Muhammad's saying to Abu Bakr, you're assured heaven. And here's what Abu Bakr says, quote, By Allah, I would never rest assured and feel safe from the deception of Allah, even if I had one foot in paradise. 
He's absolutely right. He knows Allah well. He knows Allah cannot be trusted. How different the God of the Bible is. How different the triune God is. He gives us his spirit as a seal, as an identifier for us of the pardon and the purchase of redemption that God has granted to us so that we can be assured. We are sealed until the day of redemption. John chapter 17, verse 24, like we looked at earlier. For all eternity, God has been pouring out love upon his son, and the son has been pouring out love upon the father and the, and the spirit, all together three in one. And they want to lavish that love, and Jesus prays, I want them, us, his disciples, to know that love, to rest assured in grace. Because our God is a triune God, and only because our God is a triune God, we can say he's a God of love, and he's a God of grace. Not a God of contract, but a God of grace. He is truth, he is overflowing with kindness, and he delights in showing us grace. Finally, number three. Because God is triune, God delights in unity through diversity. Because God is triune, number one, God is love. If God were not triune, he would not be loving. He couldn't be love. Intrinsically to who he is, he couldn't be love. He could ultimately be loving when he makes things, but he couldn't be love. And also, he couldn't be gracious. If he was not triune, then he would be bored. He would have to make us. He would make a contract with us. He would need us. He would be dependent upon us. And he couldn't just give us grace. But third and finally, and so practical and applicable to our lives today, because God is triune, God delights in unity through diversity. Let's look at it just in three different ways, okay? Number one, marriage. The unity of marriage and the diversity of two people coming together as one. By the way, there are some people that have serious problem with the Trinity because they say it's mathematically impossible for three to be one. And I would say, well, just talk to Sergio and Ben. They'll help you out with physics and math because I don't do that. But I also know that everybody says when two people become married, they become one. Right? And we're not just talking in a one flesh scenario. We're talking they become one. They're one household. They're one family. They're one. They work together. They're two completely different individuals that now have been joined together. So we clearly say two is one, and we have no problem with that. That's the same reality with the Trinity. Obviously, infinitely so, but three is one in the exact same reality. Three persons in one Godhead. Whether you want to use the illustrations of the water or the leaf or the egg or the apple. I just tell my kids when they ask, uh, I'll never forget my, my daughter said, we were walking through a, a book that dealt with the Trinity, and, and she said, so wait, God's like three guys. And I said, yeah, that, that makes sense. She said, but we worship one God. And I said, yes, exactly. And she goes, how? And I, I totally get it, right? We get he's three, but we only believe in one God. How does that work? And it's not, you know, 33.3% of each is God, and then together they make God. I mean, this is all another sermon for another time about what the Trinity is. I don't want to get into that. We can do that later. I just want to get into why the Trinity is relevant, why the Trinity matters. But I'll never forget talking with my daughter, and I said, it's very similar to our family, right? We are the Carmichael family. We're one family. How many people are in our family? There's five people. Does that mean we're five families? She said, no, we're one family. Well, we're five people in one family. Again, it falls woefully short of who the Trinity is, but we can understand, well, there's a concept that makes sense that five can be one. 
Marriage is the same way. You just know that the Trinity is the grounds for a beautiful marriage. The Trinity is the foundation for a marriage being what marriage is supposed to be. Two totally unique, different people coming together as one. We each have roles and responsibilities. Uh, in today's society, in today's culture, to say that a woman is called by God in the scriptures to submit to her husband is just, it's like a curse word in our culture. But if you could show people, if you could show them the beauty of submission and the reality that Jesus submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son and the Son submits to the Spirit when the Son is on earth, they all submit, they all help each other, they all work together because they have different roles and responsibilities. And yet none of them submit because one is inferior to the other or because one is worth more than the other. That's not, that's not why submission happens. So if submission in marriage is, I'm better than you, that's why you need to, to submit to me, that goes against what the Bible clearly teaches. That goes against the character and nature of our God. That goes against everything that God stands for because God in beautiful diversity in being three distinct persons totally the exact same in worth, value, honor, and glory due to their name. They gladly submit to each other. They gladly submit. So they have different roles and responsibilities. And their different roles, I'm called by God as a man, as a husband, and as a father to be the leader and the head of my household. It's not because I'm smarter than my wife. It's not because I'm superior to her. In fact, that's why God calls women to submit to men. It has to be a command because you so often want to say, I know better than this. Wives are constantly going, I'm smarter than my husband. I know how to do this. And that's why God says, just submit. Work together. There's roles and responsibilities that each person has. There's headship and submission that each person has. But it's never because of inferiority or because of a value, or because of worth. And that's all rooted in the Godhead. If we didn't have a triune God, then we could have awful, unbiblical headship and submission lived out in our marriages. God in eternity past exists in a beautiful relationship of three persons in one Godhead, each person with a unique, differing role submitting to each other, never because of worth, value, or inferiority or superiority, completely unified, three in one. God loves unity. We tell our kids this all the time. God loves unity. The devil's the exact opposite, right? The devil is the title that he's given. His name is Lucifer. Satan and devil are titles, but his name is Lucifer. The title devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which is two Greek words put together, dia and balo, or balos. Dia means through or between, and balas means to throw. That was one of those Greek words when I was memorizing Greek vocab words that was like, thank you, God, that's an easy one. Ball means to throw. Balas means to throw. Throw the balas. Great, we're good to go. You'll never forget balas. Throw between. Throw through. What does that mean? The devil likes to do exactly what's happening physically in a representation of our church right here, this enormous expanse between the two aisles, right? Normally we have this little expanse almost. Sometimes if we're honest, it's too little, right? We're walking down, we kind of have to turn this way and scoot our way through down the aisle. Well, now, brothers and sisters, we don't have an aisle problem anymore, right? You can bobsled down this aisle. This is just massively wide. So the devil says, I want to throw between you. 
Husbands and wives, the devil says, I want to throw between you. I want to divide. That's what the devil is, the divider. I want to separate you. I want to take you and separate. Families. The devil just says, first I'm going to take the wife and the husband, I'm going to take them out and separate them, and then I'm going to separate the, the father from the kids and the mother from the kids. I just want to separate everything. I want to cause division. That's what the devil wants. God is the exact opposite. He loves unity. He loves taking the most random, different, strange people and things and bringing them together to unify them. So he does that, number one, in marriage. And marriage is founded in the beautiful unity of the Trinity. He does that, number two, with uh, ethnicity, right? Different ethnic groups. Oh, how our world needs to hear this right now. The answer for all that we're seeing around us goes back to the Trinity, goes back to the unity that is found in diversity. Three different people in the Godhead, three different persons in the Godhead that have different roles, different responsibilities, different things that they're doing, and not one is superior or inferior to the other. They're working together. They are God. We need to hear this. We look around and we see racism that is so rampant. We see Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the news. We just see the world around us in this unbelievable sense of racism that's been going on since the very beginning of Genesis, since sin entered the world. So much so it's crept into our, our thinking, so much so that we literally think and speak in an illogical, unscientific way when we say we have different races. Like if you've ever gone and filled something out before where it says, what race are you? I just always want to put human. <laughs> I'm human. Yes, there's different ethnic groups. We're all the same race. We are the human race. In fact, there is scientifically less than a 0.2% difference genetically between any one of us. It's just a difference in our melanin. It's a difference in the degrees of melanin that we have. But in those different degrees, those different ethnic groups and cultures, we have beauty if we would come together in unity. No one's better than the other. No one's worse than the other. We come together with different ethnic groups and we rejoice. This is what heaven is, right? Heaven is where every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and language group is before the throne worshiping God. God loves beauty in diversity. Many different parts making up one beautiful union. And that's why the exact opposite, that's why racism is such an evil, heinous thing. Because it's separating and it's literally separating because of differences. It's saying you are worse than I am. You are inferior to me because you're different from me, which is the exact opposite of the Trinity, right? The Trinity says you're different than me, and I love you with perfect love and unifying love. One last unity through diversity example. Music. You realize the Trinity is the foundation for music being what it is? If music were just one single note, of which there are, you know, Gregorian chants, look them up on Spotify. I'll give you 15 seconds before you decide to skip the song. <laughs> if music were only always ever just one single note, I don't think anyone would enjoy it. Music is so beautiful because it has so many different moving parts, harmonies working together, different notes that come together that fashion something that 
I mean, I, I, can, I can lay down in my bed with earbuds in my ears and turn a song on and just listen, and it can bring me to tears because there's beautiful unity in the diversity of all those notes. This is why some people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, when they were speaking of God making the world in their books, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about Aslan, who's the God figure creating, he's the Jesus figure creating the world. And he talks about Aslan singing the world into existence. Because the beauty of unity through diversity is, is coming forth through song. Tolkien does the same thing in the Silmarillion, where there's an, a musical account of creation. If there was no Trinity, and God were one person in one Godhead, then what would he love more than anything? He would love a single, solitary thing. Just everything be like me. Single, solitary, boring, no diversity, no unity through other things, no harmony. No harmony, whether it's marital harmony, whether it's racial harmony, or whether it's musical harmony. No harmony. Just everybody be homogenized, the same, all just boring and bland. But the Trinity provides the logic and the foundation for a world where it is a good thing for differences to be held together in unity, and that that's glorious and beautiful. Jonathan Edwards said, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the supreme harmony of all harmonies. When we sing in harmony, we do something that reflects God's own triune unity. I, do you think about that when you sing? If you don't think about that when you sing, now you have reason to. And that's why we're going to sing together. We're going to sing in just a few moments. And we're going to sing together in beautiful unison. We're going to sing of the holiness of our God, who is blessed Trinity. We, we picked this song for a number of reasons. Number one, it speaks of our blessed Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. There's just no better way to respond than through that line. But we're also going to sing the song because we know it. Most everybody here knows that song, holy, holy, holy. And therefore, you don't need musicians to lead it. You can sing it on your own. And most of you know harmonic parts to the song. You can sing harmony. And so our voices can be raised together, and we can literally apply everything we've learned just in this last point. There's married couples in this room that can fight for unity even through their differences, even as we sing. There's different ethnic groups in this room that can fight for unity even through their diverse backgrounds, cultures, and customs, and even skin color. And then we're going to sing and raise our voices and use harmony to blend with melody and all of it's done, all of it's founded in God being triune. Because God is triune, he is love, he couldn't be if he wasn't a trinity. He is gracious, he couldn't be if he wasn't a trinity. And we have beauty and unity through diversity, which we wouldn't have if God wasn't triune. So I go back to the beginning where we started this sermon. How would you answer somebody if they came to you and they said, what? what's the big deal with the trinity? What makes, what makes God different to you as a trinity as opposed to if he were just a single solitary figure? Does anything really change if God is no longer triune and he's just a single solitary figure? Does anything really? Why does he need to be trinity? 
hopefully you'd be able to say, oh, dear friend, the Trinity is the oxygen of all Christian joy. Oh, without the Trinity, we have nothing. Because God exists in three persons, we're able to know what love is. Because God exists in three persons, we're able to rest assured in grace. And because God exists in three persons, we can enjoy and emulate beautiful unity through diversity. I don't know about you, but that gives me reason to love a triune God and to sing with all of my heart. Father, thank you so much for your word that has enabled us to see and the minds that you have given us to comprehend using the implications of your word to see the beauty of the Trinity, of our triune God. God, you are amazing. We're just, we're scratching the surface of the glory and grandeur of you and of what it means that you are triune. We, we dare not think that we will fully be able to comprehend. There will always be mystery. But God, I pray that as we sing, we would sing with knowledge, maybe fresh new knowledge and affections in our souls based on what we do know. Mysterious things belong to you, but what you have revealed belongs to us that we would know, that we would see, and we would savor. So God, we want to do that now through song to demonstrate and just practically apply beautiful unity through diversity. May you be glorified as we cherish, treasure, and delight in our triune God. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.